Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our second episode, I'll be talking to Camille Washington, co-host of the Unfriendly Black Hotties podcast, and we'll be discussing the wonder of scholastic book orders, along with forward-thinking Nick Jr. cartoons, what cereal to serve at a wedding, and Camille's deepest, darkest fear. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and tell you how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. For those who might not know you, why don't you explain who you are and why you're a beautiful, unique snowflake? Oh, golly. Snowflake me? Well, my name is Camille, and I am one half of the Unfriendly Black Hotties podcast, in which my best friend Christina and I talk about higher ed, pop culture, food, music, movies, you know, TV fashion, and whatever the hell else we feel like getting into in a given week. And other ways I'm a special snowflake. I am a lover of corn. That is really important to me. I recently changed the best friend emoji in Snapchat from the little smiley face to a corn. (laughs) And I felt really empowered and like I was living my best life in that moment. (laughs) You have very strong feelings about vegetables and uh, and also fake butter. This is a true fact about me. Yes, anyone who follows Camille on Twitter will know that, yeah, there are strong feelings about ham cubes, certain vegetables, and fake butter, and the combination of same. It is true. I do have some real butter in my house, weirdly, but it's because I made cornbread, and I I feel like I needed to put like a little bit of real butter on it or something, so that was an indulgence for me. Yeah, it's kind of like with waffles or pancakes, where it's like you need that pat of butter like sliding down. It's... See, for me, with with pancakes or waffles, it can be fake butter and fake maple syrup. Yeah. See, do you go for the butter-flavored maple syrup, the (laughs) fake one? No. That feels like too much. That feels feels crazy. That feels like against nature. But I respect people's right to to syrup and butter their muffles and pancakes (laughs) however they choose. So where did you grow up? So I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. Before that... um, my dad was stationed at an Air Force base in Illinois, Scott Air Force Base, and we stayed there until I was five. So I have some memories of life in Illinois, but mostly I'm, you know, a, a Tennessee gal. So grew up in the American South, lots of hot summers and also hot winters because the American <laughs> South is just a, a swampy armpit that I love very much. It's full of beautiful, tan, smiling people that make good roast meats so nothing to complain about there <laughs> cool and and uh you know what do you have brothers and sisters were you your only child so i'm a middle child mm-hmm. i have an older brother who is nine years older than me okay or no that's not right he's six years older than me and my little brother who i am nine years older than so there's oh, 15 wow. years between my brothers yeah that's a hell of a standard deviation there <laughs> yeah that's one way to put it those two <laughs> now my older brother is like I don't know, 32 or something. And my little brother is 17, but we are all still like thick as thieves. And whenever we all get in the same room together, we all revert to the age of eight. So it's perfect. (laughs) 
so I'm presuming you're dividing that room down with like duct tape down the middle of it and saying this is your side and this is my side and one of you is like putting the foot over and it's like look what I'm doing like that kind of thing (laughs) there's a little bit of that my older brother is more deviant even than I am if that is possible to imagine one of his favorite ways to wake my little brother and I up even now is he'll just close our little mouths and put his fingers over our nostrils (laughs) So you wait a second and then you just see a younger sibling just like struggling and like slowly suffocating, <laughs> like battling to like. I'm sure I've away. seen that in a it's human really centipede movie. Up. Christ. <laughs> I mean, that's what love is about. You know? Doing horrible things to one another. Yeah, totally. But like harmless, horrible things. So the good thing about the big age gaps between, you know, all of us is you never really had like a sibling rivalry because how do you have a sibling rivalry with someone who like has a decade on you? That's just like not a thing. Their experience that they're having is so completely different from yours. There's not that kind of jockeying for position, I imagine. Yeah, not at all. And also my parents just would never have tolerated that. So my mom is Filipino and is a Filipina and sort of like filial respect and like respect for one's elders is a huge deal in Filipino culture. So even now, I don't call my older brother by his name. I call him by like an honorific. That means like big brother. My little brother doesn't call me by my name. And so it was just like we were just like raised to like be good to each other and respect each other. So some like harmless, you know, pranking or whatever, like that's fine. But any like deep seated like viciousness would never be tolerated in our house. It's interesting because that that really reminds me of my girlfriend Kimiko is a quarter Japanese, however, still speaks it fluently and is still a huge influence in her household. And watching her and her sister and her brother and her parents, that very much reminds me of that, where it's this deep-seated thing where it's like, yes, the family above all, and this idea that, oh, there might be a week where you didn't talk to your mom or, or, you know, call your idiot brother on your way home from work, or that is just anathema to her. She just couldn't even comprehend it. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds sounds about right. It's Asian cultures. We do not play around about family stuff. As, a, as opposed to us weirdo French-Canadian white people who um, <laughs> I'll happily go months without talking to my mom or my dad. Although I'm sure my mom <laughs> would like me to call more. But then we call and just I'm like, um, okay, what, um, I, I can't really talk about work because you don't really know. We're to different continents. And so I'm like, so what are you up to? And she's like, oh, nothing. Cool. Good talk. Good talk. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of sad. So, what kind of kid were you? Were you were you a quiet kid? Were you outgoing? Like, what was your what was your experience like? I was definitely a quiet, bookish kid. I loved being alone. Even now, my my favorite person to hang out with was and still is myself. Mm-hmm. So, I spent a lot of time like watching Sailor Moon and reading novels inappropriate for like for my reading level in the library. Now for that for that was that one of those ones where it's like you'd look at it and you'd grab it off the off the rack and go that looks interesting or did you have a book enabler that would kind of slide you the good stuff? I definitely I I feel like I would seek out like high school reading lists and be like oh, well I want to read that cuz I like can. So <laughs> I first read Dickens as like a 7-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> and all and all that societal allegory was just like you were like, cool. Oh. I guess that's that's a thing. Yeah, I was just like, sure. I will slog through this. And like, as an adult, I have yet to make it through like 
a single Dickens novel. It's like, no, this was not meant to be read in one sitting. Mm-mm, this is was serialized. So it is... The way, the way I've found where that I can get through Dickens is using an audiobook, especially if it's a good quality one from like Audible or something. It's basically like listening to a radio drama. And so it's like, because you get different voices for different people. I got through Great Expectations that way because they had a really good reader who could do all the different voices and it was very clear who was speaking and that they would have a regional accent and that brought through a lot of that character that you wouldn't get just by kind of reading it flat on the page. And you wouldn't fall asleep? Um, no. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of an audio, audiobook fiend in that, like, I did, God, I did The Stand, which is 49 hours. Jesus. I, I remember explaining it to one of my friends, and he's like, Lucas, there is a finite amount of time in your life. I'd like you to reconsider this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I have definitely enjoyed audiobooks before, but for me, it's just like the classics. It, I just can't. I feel unmoored if I'm not also looking at the words on the page. I remember um, in college, my roommate and I were taking the same class and we were assigned the Iliad and we had both read it before, but like not for college level comprehension. And we decided that like rather than reading a paper copy of it, we would split the cost of the audiobook, which was like 80 bucks or something because it was many, many hours long. We just took so many great naps to the Iliad like (laughs) yeah I I can relate to that in that the first audiobook I ever listened to I was maybe 15 and it was a novelization of an X-Files non-canon novel read by Gillian Anderson and thing is I love Gillian Anderson she's fantastic she does not have a voice for audiobooks well, but also that string of words. I was like, I have so many like follow-up questions about like this book and like its <laughs> genesis and like how did they like trick Gillian Anderson into doing it? <laughs> Must have been a contract thing or it's like, yeah. Uh, yeah. As part of your promotional thing, you got to go sit in a booth for 20 hours and record a story that climaxes with uh, a cloud of Japanese ghosts flying across a bay to attack a nuclear test site. And I remember just listening to it and going, yeah, I, don't, I think this made it, would have made just as much sense had I listened to the whole thing and not fallen asleep to the flat, dulcet tones of Dana, of Dana Scully's voice. <laughs> yeah. As I think about it, yeah, that's not a voice that's going to help you stay lucid, I don't think. Mulder got out of the car and stepped over to the window. <laughs> I think oh, no. you should go over here, he said. Like that, that level of emotion. <laughs> So basically, like, the voice of that girl who played Matilda in the Matilda movie. Oh, Mara Wilson. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That voice. <laughs> one and the same. Her, Dana Scully, throw them in a room. And- also, whenever they whenever they had to get Sarah Michelle Gellar to read or narrate anything on Buffy, it's that completely flat effect where it's like, yeah, you don't want to be yeah. here. You're already thinking about the ride home. Although it seems like that's like a pretty sweet gig. Just like read aloud for a while. I feel like <laughs> I would really enjoy doing that. I don't know. I feel like Jim Dale, like the amount of fun that he had with the Harry Potter audiobooks, like made a strong impression on me that like that was a really fun thing to do. Because he's another one who like obviously did like all the voices. I know there are people who don't like the kind of cast of voices style of audiobook, but I'm all for it. Like I did uh, Patrick Rothfuss's Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, which are real good. And I think if I had read them, I wouldn't have as strong a connection as I do to those books because that reader specifically was... So uh, gave everyone a voice and his pronunciation was beautiful to the point where I read the words on a page later and I went, oh, okay, that, that's, I had no idea how that was spelled because of the way you pronounced it. 
So coming back to reading ahead of your time, I could see like getting that high school reader and being like, all right, I'm getting a leg up. See, whereas I would just like sneak the Christopher Pike books off my sister's shelf and mm. read those like the Fear Street ones and like scare myself to death on a, on a, a Sunday afternoon, which by the way, I need to look this up. There is one of those called Scavenger Hunt, which literally has zombies and a race of lizard people as its climax. Wait, simultaneously? Yeah. Like, where it's like, oh, there's a bunch of characters <laughs> okay. that are slowly getting more sinister, and you realize they're not on the, the protagonist's side, and you realize one of them is his dead friend who's come back to life, and two of the others are from an ancient race of lizard people. And I remember being like, like that's that's a big ask to like throw into the last <laughs> chapter of a book. <laughs> yeah, and how long are those, are, are those books even? They're like 148 pages? like Something like that. So it's like, I, I want to like just find it again, but it would have to be like a battered secondhand copy from a bookstore that you can like fold the cover back. And thing is, I'm usually real good with my books. I don't like dog ear pages or bend the spines or anything, but I think that particular type of book loans itself to that beat to shit paperback. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's on eBay out there somewhere waiting for you. <laughs> Or in a shop. But I, as you mentioned, the Fear Street books, I definitely pilfered some like Goosebumps copies from my older brother, who is not and has never been like a, a real big reader. But he, he, he was a teenage boy. So he, he had to read some Goosebumps from time to time. It's in the Constitution. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I also have fun memories of going to, a, to the library taking a Goosebumps book off the shelf and realizing that I can skip along and get the gist of it and read fast enough that. I can pretty much read it without having to take it out. Mm. So it's like you can just get like the major points like, okay, twist, 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 big twist, end of the book. Cool. Don't need to read that. It's like cutting corners. Yeah. So speaking of books, you wanted to talk about something which is very near and dear to my heart. And this was the Scholastic Mm. Book Order and Book Fair process. So walk me through your experience. Oh, my God. Okay. So they were a staple of my elementary school experience I just I can feel in my hands those that thin paper that like the the catalog was printed on and like the order forms and so many of my initiations into good YA fiction came from the Scholastic Book Fair god and I I googled it like in preparation for our talk and I found out there's an app now oh Jesus that's dangerous (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, in addition to the traditional tissue paper order form, you can like peruse in an app. I had to immediately close the window. I was like, I'm at work. I I don't have six hours to allocate to this to project right this now. Particular rabbit for hole. a later time. Yeah. <laughs> See, I I can remember initially like getting those things and going straight for like the Garfield treasuries or the Farside treasuries, and then eventually oh, like yeah. spreading out into. And at first, there were the drawing books, which were the ones where they would show, like, here is a triangle. Here is a series of triangles. And then here is a fully detailed rendered fighter jet. Draw a shape. Draw another shape. Now just draw the whole thing. Yeah, I feel like those drawing books, at least one would make its way into my order every, every time. Because I always wanted to be able to do that but I just like I couldn't so then I switched over to like whatever paper craft book like origami or something like that rather than the drawing I just gave up so you're better than me friend you just like soldiered on with your talent (laughs) I soldiered on but eventually I got to the point where I would uh just trace the last thing I'd be like look I drew this thing (laughs) tracing it out of the book I wouldn't follow the process at all which I suppose is equivalent to me like you know scrolling through Pinterest on in the morning before work and thinking ah what do I feel like drawing today 
same kind of thing. I have a specific memory about the Scholastic Book Order where I got to learn that my father was secretly a fantasy geek because I had this book order and I brought it home and I was looking through it and dad looked over my shoulder and went, oh my God, they have a box set of Lord of the Rings. And I said, what's that? And he's like, oh, it's this book that I read that I thought no one else had ever heard of. That he thought no one else had ever heard of? Apart from him and Jimmy Page, apparently. Uh. Like he said he, he had read this when he was younger, when he was like 16, and went, oh, this is really cool. And then just like, you know, read that, he read The Hobbit and The Fellowship of the Ring to death. And even to the point where our first dog was named Bilbo Baggins on his papers. Then just never talked about it. He just presumed this was this weird book I found at a bus station. And it would be embarrassing for me to bring it up because, you know, fantasy ghetto. And... Then later, when the movies were coming out, him realizing that there were, you know, hundreds and thousands of other people who had read and loved these books. It's kind of like when, um, I, I remember a similar one where I found out that The Wheel of Time is read by other people than just me. And I think I was maybe like 16 when I found that out, where someone's like, oh, hey, it's this book, you know, and it's about this guy and he can do like magic. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. And then we had like a really intense 15 minute conversation where it's like, oh, you too? And that kind of shared experience. It's so wonderful when you find your nerd tribe and you can just be amongst your people. And then you realize you've been mispronouncing all of the names in your head. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I, I feel like my head canon is like the true canon always, yeah. even when it comes to pronunciation. So for, for good or ill. <laughs> Stepping away from the book flyer, what about the book fair experience? Do you have anything around that? So I have memories of bringing my little brother to the fair when he was like five or six and seeing his excitement. But I feel like when I was going myself and knew that I was getting things for myself, that I was just like blacked out with joy and just like, <laughs> and, and just like nothing got, you know, cashed to the hard drive or whatever tech <laughs> words analogy. <laughs> No, I'm with you. I feel you. So my big book fair story, and the thing is, the book fairs would be held in the gym at my elementary school, and so it was. It would usually be in an evening. Like it'd be after school, and mm. although they would they would do the a really savvy business thing, which is where they would they'd put it on at lunchtime, and you could go and visit, but no one was allowed to buy anything until you were there later that evening with your parents. So it would be like you'd go, and it would be like this teaser where you'd be like, "Oh, I want that one, and I want that one." Or, you, or worse, you'd pick up and start reading something, and then the bell would ring, and you'd have to go back to class, and you'd know, oh, I'm hooked. I have to go back and find out what happens. Mm. And I was there with my parents, and I remember like looking around, and my dad was like, all right, you can pick any book you want, but just one. And for some reason, I landed on, because I'd been reading a lot of those stories about horses. My sister had a, had a compendium of like Stormy, Misty's Foal, and like all these things like that. So I looked, and I saw a book with a picture of a horse on it. I'm like, I'll take that one. That one was The Red Pony by John Steinbeck. Oh, yeah, that's a different vibe. Yeah, I was eight. And that <laughs> pony dies in like the fourth chapter. And yeah. everything else was just like hard scrabble sadness and, you know, sort of poverty and work ethic and don't dream. It'll just crush you. And I got to the end and I'm like, what did I just read? I mean, because Steinbeck. Yeah, because Steinbeck. And I'm still mad to this day. I'm like, why do you put the pony on the title if the pony dies early? What the shit, man? <laughs> Just to entice you, to bring you in so they can more effectively crush you. The anvil of adulthood and despair and tragedy about reality and life and the fact that it comes to an end. Happy Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Saturday morning for me. Oh, yeah. I also have a specific memory of, I think a book fair was, was around the first time when I decided 
oh, I, when I understood that books could come in different editions. So did you were you did you read the, the Chronicles of Narnia when you were a kid? I read them as a teen. I did okay. not read them as like a child child, but I did read them. Here's an important question. Mm. What is your headcanon order for the series? Oh. Like, how, how does it go? Like, which is the, like, let's say, which is the first book that you read? I mean, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe is definitely the first one that I read. Because essentially, there is some debate and around whether the publication order or the author's kind of chronological order. So oh. if you're reading it in a chronological order, it starts with The Magician's Nephew and then goes to Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. I think it's then A Horse and His Boy, Prince Caspian, Don Treader. And then if you read them that way, there is a clear progression of story. Whereas the way they were published was Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was first and then a bunch kind of jumping back and forth. And I can remember reading them on the library shelves in the chronological order, starting with the Magician's Nephew and moving on, and then seeing that there was a, a box set that had the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first. And I think it even had, like, the, the BBC, like, television adaptation cover. And I remember getting so mad. Oh, and yeah. And just being like, no, no, that's wrong. That's not how they're supposed to go. <laughs> And, and then, like, trying to explain it to people, and people are like, no, no, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe is first. That's how I read it. I'm like, no, 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 this is not how it's supposed to be. And yeah. th- that first dissonance of this is how it should be versus this is how it is. Yeah, I mean, I'm feeling a lot of that with the all of the cursed child discussion that's happening right now. Yeah, see, I've managed to avoid a lot of that. Fill me in. What are people saying? Well, I mean, it's just having the author still around and, like, still although jk barely touched this this play but just the idea that like we can actually like ask jk like what was the authorial intent with of everything that she has done and i don't think i like that i i think i don't really want to want to hear from her unless she's like truly writing like another book about the trio like i don't care to know it's like it exists and it's perfect hermetically sealed little egg in my brain and I don't want any other like opinions or or tidbits being added on I know what you mean about the the JK Rowling thing where it's like it's one thing for people to write their own headcanon it's something for people to write fan fiction when it's actually the author and it's like you're saying okay this this didn't this didn't need to happen. You have this encapsulated thing. Let people dream. And I'm not even going to get into the whole um, Star Wars expanded universe thing where suddenly with the new movies, they were Disney were like, okay, none of that is canon anymore. Where it used to be, there were these, these lines that were part of the story and these that weren't, that were like imaginary stories. And mm-hmm. now it's like, okay, only our fiction is the real one. And it made a lot of people upset. And it's like, okay, look. I'm going to get close up on the mic. I don't really care about the Star Wars expanded universe. I really don't. <laughs> and that's going to make me some enemies. And I do not care. I mean, people have their feels. I can't. I, I don't. There's not enough hours in the day for me to like care about everyone's feelings about yeah. whatever. But. <laughs> but the idea of, especially with, with J.K. Rowling, it's like, it seems like every time she adds something, it's like you're you're weakening that stock. You're you know you're diluting that. Yeah, a little absolutely. Bit more. You're di- you you are diluting the message. What you have done in seven books is perfect. Well, not perfect, but very very good and pure, and is a text that I refer to even now when I face personal quandaries. I think, what would Hermione do? What would Ron do? Let me do the opposite of whatever that is, because Ron is terrible, as we all know. Ron is hot garbage. We have all accepted this. Hot alley trash. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, stop like adding stuff to Pottermore and just like, no. So, but I mean, it is also 
something that came from her brain, right? So you have to honor that. But for me, like for my own sanity, that just means I have to sort of tap out of all that stuff. Like it's the seven books and then I just, la la la, I can't hear you when you're talking to me about anything else that she's done since it's also why i've i've stopped following a lot of creators on twitter because mm. it's like you know i have this image of you having created this thing that i really love please, please don't ruin that by, by talking politics and anything else you want to it's like uh, no no please please don't do that don't even talk about sports like uh, no no i don't want to know how how you're this weird per- like if it were a seinfeld episode you would be a face painter i don't want to know that <laughs> oh god it's definitely a risk i mean creators like parents are just people mm-hmm. it turns out so yeah go figure god especially uh i'm not sure how much you follow any comics people on twitter but it seems like every couple of months there is a stoush between critics or people who review and write about comics and comics creators and then someone will write some really inflammatory po- like think piece about entitled fans and how it's really terrible and then everyone will weigh in and it'll all kind of explode for like maybe two weeks and then calm down again and after a while i'm just like i i can't do this i don't have enough bandwidth in my life to have all these sides of this argument oh yeah yeah i that seems very true and real to me and is part of why i don't really follow any like big comics creators on twitter there are some creators of like really like small indie web comics that are really cool and like chill to engage with but other than that it's like yeah i'd just rather not know yeah i'm just like cringing (laughs) we've brought up a few kind of fantasy series was was fantasy a big thing for you when you were younger fantasy not so much so when i was young i was really dedicated to like getting through the classics okay see most people don't don't normally hit that stage until like you know mid-university or early 20s where they're like i'm just gonna read penguin books from now on well so the first book that i got that i really really loved and i remember is little women that was gifted to me by my best friend elizabeth goff in kindergarten and i think she actually gave it to me i think we were in the first grade and i know that's not like it's it, i mean it's not like a jane eyre classic which is another one of my favorite books but it ha- it deals with those like heavier issues and there are these sort of strong female characters and i think that the strong female character thing was sort of what what drove my my pleasure reading growing up but little women man i i read that book until it like fell apart I mean, the spine was just gone. I would stay up late reading it. I would wake up early in the morning to read it before school, which was like crazy early because I had to be at school at like eight. So I was up at like 5.30, little, you know, seven-year-old Camille, like <laughs> like drinking like warm milk or something. So that, that's early for, for a book like that. I mean, I'm trying to think what would be an equivalent. I mean, I know my, my mom had, you know, ulterior motives where she would give me something like The Secret Garden or White Fang or something like that and be mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, it's just a book. I think you'll like it. And reading it and not realizing that this book was not really written for me and lots of descriptions of wolves tearing apart rabbits and stuff. And, you know, gentle nine-year-old Lucas was like, I, I, I don't, I don't really like this. I was down for The Secret Garden though. And so I could very much see how little little women and something like that, for all that, like you said, it may not be in that sort of classics canon. I think it is, though. I think yeah. if you if you would raise that, I think that would be an extremely formative book for a lot of people. Well, I haven't I haven't read it in a while. I I should reread it actually. It's such a good book, but it's also it's so dark and like that death is just like 
crushing and the choices that you have to make and the sacrifices that you have to make. It's just like, that's a pretty heavy book. Like, as I think about <laughs> it, it's like, you know, I don't know that I would read that if I were like in like a low point, you know, it's like, no. I need to be feeling like really up so I can like do this. Um, but yeah, you little women over the bad really... stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so that book was really formative for me and a book from the Scholastic Book Fair that was really important to me was Shiloh, which is oh. about that. That dog. Say, is that about the dog yeah yeah it's a it's about an abused dog <laughs> oh, and you know the echoes of abuse through in families and generations and like all of these complex moral quandaries and like when when is it okay to tell a lie you know mm. and yeah i like so, i like the heavy stuff i think it's true now too see, see there's a thing about books for kids that feature a pet heavily it's like you know that animal is gonna die it's it's terrible and it really shouldn't be that way but like i remember looking coming back to the scholastic book order and seeing a book that was called luke baldwin's vow and i remember picking it particularly because the first name was close the closest thing to my name that i had mm-hmm. seen in print and going yes i want that and it's about a city kid who moves to a farm his uncle then destroys all of his books because he doesn't want him daydreaming for, about anything except for farm life and he has a collie that he loves and a, and the collie's on the cover of the book and of course the collie dies you know oh sorry spoiler for luke baldwin's vow circa <laughs> 1986 have you read um h is for hawk no oh it's it's excellent that's that's a book my little brother has that might be like a boy book quote i'm doing air quotes because that's not <laughs> a real thing but well no that's the thing is that it's, it's written and narrated about and it is a, a true autobiographical story about a woman so oh. and it's essentially a, it, it was the book that caused me to no joke reread the entirety of the once and future king which i reread the sword and the stone over and over and over again when i was a teenager and never went further than that and went and got again the 38 hour audiobook version and listen to the whole thing because that book paints it in such a different light when you talk about T.H. White's life and how, how it is involved. But the thing in H's for Hawk that I was reminded of is that what Helen McDonald says about animal protagonists is that when you're a kid reading a book, a human pr- protagonist will get out of life-threatening situations. You know, if it's a kid in a book that you're reading about, that kid will never die. They may have people close to them die, but the the kid always survives. If it's a book about an animal, the animal almost always dies. So in The Sword and the Stone, when Wart is being changed from a human into an animal, those scenes were infused with a real danger for her because he's no longer safe as a protagonist. He's now a bird or a fish or a lizard Mm. or something. And that adds like this frisson of terror to it. Which struck me as really interesting. Interesting. Wow. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. That is really rain true. I remember I, like, I was listening to it on a, like, a lunch break from work. And I actually stopped it and had deep thoughts for about oh, five to ten minutes as I started going through all the books I had read that had animal protagonists and going, yeah, yeah, there, were, there is a lot of death in those. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Makes you think. Sure does. <laughs> So tell me, you said you wanted to talk about Nickelodeon. Let's talk about Nickelodeon. So the first thing you should know is I did not really get to watch like TV for little kids 
when I myself was a little kid. Okay. So mostly because I was never allowed to have a TV in my bedroom, even when I became a teenager. That was just not a thing that was permitted in the Washington household. My parents were just like, no. I mean, even when I got a laptop, which I bought with my own money, even that was like borderline. Like they didn't love it. Was it like a thing about controlling what you see or was it just that you shouldn't need this thing? I think it was mostly like your bedroom is supposed to be a place for like sleep and like study and contemplation. Okay. And they also just, they didn't want me to become one of those kids who was just zoned out in front of the TV all night. Okay. So I zoned out in front of books all night (laughs) instead, which is (laughs) whatever. I still blame my parents for that. It's like, you know, maybe I'd be able to see if I didn't have to like stay up all night reading books like in the dark because I like didn't want to get yelled at for staying up late. (laughs) As the youngest for the first nine years of my life, I I had no vote. I had no power on like what got watched and the, the two main TVs in the house. Like so my parents would be watching the news or whatever on their TV and then me and my older brother would watch whatever he wanted to watch, which was chiefly WWF wrestling, because it was still WWF then. And he tried to do many a wrestling move on me. It's amazing. I never broke a limb. (laughs) I was also a wrestling fan growing up. And at one point on a trampoline, I did a powerbomb on my little sister who was seven. And she landed fine. But then by landing on her back, her knee came up and knocked her two front teeth down her throat. (laughs) After which it was then decided that, no, there would be no wrestling moves on the trampoline. (laughs) Yeah. That's dangerous AF. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> How old were you at the time? Oh, I, I was old enough to know better. I was a teenager, so. <laughs> yeah, my brother was too. My brother has six years on me, so he like, yeah. He also like practiced hickeys on me. Whoa, okay. We've suddenly become a Which, different kind of podcast. <laughs> no, I don't think either of us knew what it was. And he would put, do them on like my arm. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't think he understood like like what a hickey was. I think he was like 11. Yeah, I could see it being more like a pranking thing rather than like anything else. Yeah, it wasn't, you know. But I I reflect back on it, it's like, kids do some like weird shit because they like don't know anything about the world. But also like hickeys, like, just pause, like, why? Why are we doing that? Like, that was like the thing to do in middle school. uh, I remember like finding out what hickeys were like through TV shows and still never knowing and never having or giving one until like university when you'd like do it to someone like oh look i'm gonna mess with you that you were dating would be like a funny thing but i remember like specifically an episode of growing pains where someone had a hickey and went to great pains to hide it and that was like the narrative thrust of the episode was how many Mm -hmm. scarfs could you wear or how many things could you stand behind so the parents wouldn't notice yeah i still i don't I don't get it. I don't think I've ever given or received one because it's like, that just doesn't seem pleasant. I just don't want you just slobbering all over me for just just to do it, just to... Exactly. And and the effort, <laughs> the, like the effort required to actively do that. It takes makes... a lot of strength. Exactly. It's to like... commit to that project. <laughs> Unless you are thinking, I will give this person a hickey. It's actually quite difficult to do, like by accident. Yeah. It, it... There, it, it is in no way sensual. Like, I don't really... We're, we're just like generations of North American kids just kissing wrong. Like, you're just, <laughs> you're just no good at it, guys. Yeah. Yeah, that seems really real. That seems really real. Uh, funny, <laughs> funny story in Australia. Hickeys and things like that are referred to as pash rash. Because pash... Pash 
rash because pashing is like it's equivalent of necking so Mm. if you're you're having an intimate pash and then it's like oh you'll you'll come to school with pash rash and it's this this thing and it's like that's both interesting and horrifying it's very quippy i do like that (laughs) yeah pash rash short and snappy but i feel like i'm going to use it inappropriately in a too adult (laughs) manner Uh uh-oh that is your right out late again you're gonna get you got that pass rash. Who is this person? Got that pass rash. <laughs> See, it just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like, am I going to write that? Let me write that down. No, this is being recorded. I don't have to write it down. Got it's it. recorded for, for posterity. <laughs> so coming back to the TV. Yeah. So I never had control over anything. I think, so again, my brother really liked to watch WWF Wrestling and The Simpsons. So I have some negative associations with The Simpsons just because I was forced to watch it. I never got to choose to watch it. Okay. But then my little brother was born when I was nine, and then I was like, yes, this is an excuse for me to watch all the cartoons that I want to watch. And as a result, I got hooked on all these sort of like Nick Jr. cartoons when I was like a little bit too old to be into them. Like um, Franklin, which is about that. Oh, the turtle. Yeah, yeah. Franklin the turtle. Yeah. Love that show. Um, Kipper, the little dog with the spots. Any Arthur up in there? Yeah, Arthur. Maisie was a little mouse. Yeah, Maisie's huge over here in Australia. She's got uh, books all over the place. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is she Australian? I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest. But I, I remember working in a bookstore and, like, shelving the kids' section. All the Maisie books would be everywhere. As I think about it, like, maybe she had an accent. I don't remember. Maybe some night I'll, like, get drunk and, like, watch a bunch of kids' shows and <laughs> make my neighbors really concerned. <laughs> Little Bill was another one. Um, so this was Bill Cosby's animated show, which came out, I think, I think it was 1999. 2000 something around there my little brother was like pretty young but i remember really liking that show like and i think it was pretty well received and it was just you know black family in philadelphia and little bill trying not to get in trouble and having regular family dynamics with his regular family that just happened to be black so there's also this show called gullah gullah island on nickelodeon i have never heard of this so it is about, it's like a sing-along, like Barney style show, but like way better because it's about this family in South Carolina and they're part of the Gola community, which it's this sort of like Creole tradition that has elements from like Central and West Africa. Mm-hmm. And it's this really rich tradition of like slave descended peoples in sort of the Carolinas and like people who came like from Jamaica and sort of that part of the world. And so I remember, again, regularly seeing these Southern black people on TV, like dancing around with this big polywog character. I I pity the fool who had to wear that polywog costume. (laughs) And again, it was just sort of like Barney, but like black and Creole. That's cool. And that was regular to me. Like, I feel like I was fortunate to grow up in a time when there were were a lot of shows with black people in it, like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, like was so huge and just like played such a big role in the way I perceived my own family and like what I aspired to in my relationships with my family and also in developing my comic sensibility. Like that show just holds up so well. So like there was that show, there was Martin and Living Single, which I was too young 
to really, <laughs> I shouldn't have been <laughs> watching it. Um, but my dad always had it on in the den. So I, I watched both those shows. Coming back to Fresh Prince for a second. Uh, I just need to, to take a moment to, po- to point out that as an adult, looking back and realizing just how cool James Avery was. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> like in his life, like dude was a marine diver. Also was, he was the voice of the shredder on Ninja Turtles. Which is another important cultural property that we will have to come back to. Oh, hell yes. But it's like looking back, <laughs> sure, Uncle Phil was was sort of a comic relief and there was lots of fat jokes and stuff, but he got to be badass in that show? Yeah. To a point that I didn't get it back then and looking back and realizing, okay, the show's writers understand how cool of a guy James Avery is. Yeah, I was really sad when he died. I remember my older brother and I had like a, a lengthy Facebook exchange about just like how much of a bummer it was and how much we missed Uncle Phil and just like, oh man, that whole show was just incredible. And obviously the first Aunt Viv was the best Aunt Viv. Despite the fact that she was despised by the cast. <laughs> yeah, I still don't really understand that whole feud that she had with Will. Was it with the whole cast or was it just with Will? Because I always thought it was primarily with Will. See, I've heard both. I've heard that it was um, that just basically she wouldn't talk to the rest of the cast who, like a lot of sitcom families, became very close in the shooting of things. And Mm -hmm. she always held herself aloof. And I think she had like a specific feud with Will that then exacerbated that. Yeah. I mean, whatever. For the time that she was on the show, she worked through it and they all worked through it and made a great product. It was just so reliably funny. I need to own that. I should own all, all the seasons of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I'm writing that down. You'd think it would be out there. I, I remembered working in stores and seeing at least the first season was released on DVD. It's definitely out there, for sure. So they must have come back into the other. Yeah. I imagine it would be on something like Netflix or Hulu. You know, I don't think they are. They should be. Oh, actually, come, come to think of it, it might have some of the same trouble that stopped Daria from being put on streaming is because of all the music licensing. Oh, yeah, I could see that. The minute you put anything with, at the time, remotely current music, it's like, okay, we now have to track down the members of this band that broke up 20 years ago to get approval from all of them to use their song or something. Oh, yeah, and it was the same thing with um, The Real World, like the early seasons of The Real World. You can get the DVD, but all the music is different than what originally aired, and it's just like, well, what is the point even? of this yeah andrew ila on twitter was talking about that he was re-watching daria on dvd and he made a proposition that it's actually better with generic music because it allows the show to stand on its own without it having to shout hey look at me i'm in the 90s it doesn't tether it to a particular date and therefore makes it more relevant to right now i can see that See that. The thing is, I remember there was this wave of Nickelodeon. Because the thing is, we didn't get Nickelodeon in Canada. We had YTV. And YTV was always Channel 19, and it was the Kids Network. It was mm. the first place I ever heard the word VJ because they had hosts in between the cartoons. It was the first network I ever saw Are You Afraid of the Dark on. It was the first <gasps> network I ever saw Buffy on. It was the first network I saw the Weird Science TV show, as well as many cartoons and formative things. And YTV kind of was the market for the Nickelodeon things. Like, that, they played Guts, which was the Nickelodeon, like, Double Dare-style TV yeah, show. Yeah, I remember. I remember. I, I liked Guts fine. I would watch it when it was on. Legends of the Hidden Temple was obviously very, very important. Did you guys get that in Canada? We didn't, but I've heard enough American, like, podcasters and web personalities talk about it. Apparently, Anthony Carboni, who used to be on Revision 3 and is now on, like, We Have Concerns and stuff, was actually a contestant. 
and many people will like troll him by like pulling up little specky nerdy him and being like oh you couldn't figure out that puzzle but apparently he did actually get past the guards and and win something but it wasn't a particularly good prize some of the that challenge in the temple is scary all the stones coming to life and you got to they chase you all around creation is terrifying i would be good at it now because i'm like i go to kickboxing like i can fuck you up temple guard <laughs> Yeah, you're, but back you're quick in the on day, your feet. Like, yeah. No, I would be dead. I would I would do no pride to the Green Monkeys, which is obviously the best team. Don't at me. <laughs> See, I remember there was an, an sort of an alternate version. There was a TV show called Fun House, which I remember was lots of like sort of trivia questions and challenges involving slime. And the final thing was that, yeah, you had to run through the fun house. And looking back, I can see it was clearly a Legend of the Hidden Temple knockoff without any of the appropriative mind iconography. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's nice. <laughs> Thinking back, all I can imagine is this like live action version of the board game Mousetrap, and I think I'm pretty sure that wasn't what it is. By the way, can we just talk? Mousetrap was the worst board game. It's pretty bad. It never worked. It's pretty bad. I don't think that was one that I ever owned. I feel like Clue was pretty good. I mean, Clue is obviously amazing. Yeah, I, I was down with Clue. What yeah. is that one? Is it called Guess Who? Where you like flip the faces? Oh, you flip the faces down. Yeah. Yeah, that one was fun. And, until you got somebody with glasses and you're like, shit. Fuck, yeah. Because they're going to ask <laughs> about the glasses and that cuts you down to like three people. Oh, so Connect Four. Th- this is another sort of embarrassing thing about Camille. I am really bad at Connect Four. And also Tic-Tac-Toe. Oh, no. I don't know why. Oh, no. I think I just get scared. Is it just that, that like, spatial plotting kind of thing where it's like... Yeah, some I just, like, can't see the pattern. I'm, like, pretty bad. At it. It's, like, <laughs> real embarrassing. Like, not good. See, I, I'm really down with it, with the current trend in Sydney bars, which is that they just have a stack of board games for people. Mm, yeah. And so now as an adult, I can say that I'm okay at Connect Four, but I'm real good at Jenga. Especially after, it, it's kind of that thing like when you're playing pool where you've had like one or two drinks and you get like exponentially better at pool. It's the same with Jenga where it's like you will do stupid things you would never consider sober, but you're not yet drunk enough to make the sort of dexterity mistakes. And so you'll be like, oh, I'm going to leave this like floating on one block in the middle. Now deal with that. You're like just fearless enough to be dangerous. Like, yeah. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Which may be the title of this episode. Into it, yes. Just fearless enough to be dangerous. I was going to say the other thing, because I was involved in a lot of cartoons that I was watching at the time, and now I got a little bit too old for it. But there was a like this Nickelodeon cartoon renaissance when you had like Powerpuff Girls and Samurai Jack and Dexter's Laboratory. Oh, those are all, those are all the Cartoon Network ones. Oh shoot! Have I crossed the streams? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there you go. You have. It's okay. <laughs> the Cartoon Network kind of renaissance that I was just like a touch too old for. But I remember talking to like people that I worked with and just mentioning one of these things that's in passing yeah. and watching their eyes light up. I feel like, I think I also was maybe just a little bit too old, but I still really appreciate, I mean, Samurai Jack especially is like very, very timeless and like watch it countless times. Powerpuff Girls too. I mean, and also that drawing style, that, that style of art was something that was very different than what was on TV at the time. And so that was really cool. Speaking of that, did you ever watch Teen Titans? Yes. Obviously. Oh, Obviously. such a good show, right? I originally started watching, like, because I went back for ages and would, like, pirate whole seasons of cartoon shows when I would be working at a place that I had to train to for a long time. 
and I had just bought an iPad, and so I would just like rip whole seasons of like Justice League and Teen Titans and Transformers Prime and stuff because it's like so it's like junk food, and especially Teen Titans because I had just finished Justice League, and I was like, wow, that got heavy at the end, and so I'm like, I need something fun. Teen Titans is fun, and it freaking was, but then of course you got this like dense plotting and then it got dark by the end too. Yeah, that that Terra storyline was pretty that was like bummer city. It was great but also just like was amazing? A little bit heavy. And, but also yeah. And then later it's like oh you have Zombie Slade coming back and it's like like Robin kicks him in the head and his head twists around and he like yeah. twists it back cuz he's a zombie now. Oh, it's intense. But yeah, that show was was like a perfect gem. I love that show so much. Yeah, so good. You got, you got to respect any TV show that has a version of its theme song that will tell you it's a silly one. <laughs> I was thinking that that's such a good theme song also. Yeah, the idea that, okay, if you hear the lyrics in Japanese, you can relax. This is not going to be a dark episode. This is going to be a silly one where Cyborg gets a virus and thinks everything is waffles. Everything is waffles, I would argue. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'm wise. Sometimes I say deep stuff. <laughs> Oh, we were watching Stranger Things, and I had to explain to Kimiko, who's lived in Japan and Australia, what an Eggo waffle is. Was the magic, like, alive for her? Did her eyes become alight with, like, the, the, the wonders of the Eggo waffle? Does she think it's amazing, or does she think it's horrifying? I'm going to say no. She was like, why, why would you freeze a waffle? And I'm like, but then you can have a waffle whenever you want. Whenevs. It's whenevs, whatevs. And you would like put the butter on it and it would like melt into the squares. It's one of my favorite drunk foods. I'm just going to throw it out there. I would also do the peanut butter and jam Eggo waffle. Mm, And then you would like take the second waffle and make a little sandwich. And it's, waffles are just so much better than pancakes in my opinion. It like doesn't even bear discussing. Yeah, because pancakes have such a, have such a propensity to be bad. Such a propensity to be bad. So heavy. They sit in your stomach like a rock. It's like you have two bites and you're like, okay, I'm fucking sick of this. Like. That is why the silver dollar pancake is the correct way to do pancakes, I say. True. It's the the way my dad always did it. And I learned as an adult, if you do buttermilk pancakes specific like made with actual buttermilk and you whip the egg whites separately until they're almost a meringue and then fold them in Mm -hmm. it's actually like a chemical reaction the acids in the buttermilk and the proteins in the eggs and it makes the biggest fluffiest pancakes you will ever want it's like perfect everyone should just eat breakfast food all the time (laughs) it's pretty much leslie and ron of parks and rec had it right why would anyone eat any food other than breakfast food they are correct you know (laughs) it's also good. There was another cartoon that I wanted to make sure that I mentioned, which also has a dope theme song, As Told by Ginger. Have you heard of this show? No, and I'm intrigued. So it's a story about just like a teen girl, like in suburbia, whatever, and she like goes to high school and like blah, 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 whatever. But the theme song is sung by one Macy Gray. Okay. Yes. Yes. All right. It's, it's like pretty iconic. <laughs> <laughs> she get into it. I, I assure you. See, up, up until now, I, w- I was picturing like like Pepper Ann, which was like one of my sister's fa- little sister's favorite shows. And now I'm thinking of Macy Gray singing the Pepper Ann theme, and it's just oh, <laughs> I'm not sure the universe could contain it. I don't know. That might be. It might be too hot to handle. You're right. <laughs> it might be too much. But that's all. That show was really important to me, and that theme song was really important to me. I f- I am certain that when this episode drops. 
a thousand people are gonna tweet at us just like <gasps> the second that was said I just started singing that song to myself and now I hate you because it's stuck in my head for forever go on but go it's on. also great it's like a gift it's okay like a you, gift. you are now contractually obligated to now sing a little <laughs> bit of the song I'll be real quiet all right and go someone once told me the grass was much greener on the other side and I paid a visit something 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 more Macy Gray voice. <laughs> that was kind of amazing. And I, I kind of like, I, I know I, I just set you up like it was a joke, but I kind of just held still for a moment and listened. Because it's kind of really nice. Oh, <laughs> thanks, Frond. I, I wish I had the, the real Macy Gray rasp. I can't like actually do it. Since we were talking about waffles, what was mm. your Saturday morning cartoon food? Like, was it, what did you have the big bowl of cereal? Did you... Like go the waffles. What was your what was your wrap? It was big bowl of cereal, and occasionally I could like trick my mom into buying us cocoa pebbles, and that I was really into. I was I was naive. I hadn't I had not yet discovered Cookie Crisp, Cookie Crisp, <laughs> which is obviously the best cereal. It's the best sugary cereal. I will have it served at my wedding. Don't at me. <laughs> See, we weren't we weren't allowed to have Cookie Crisp or the eventual Reese's Puffs because they were like my dad felt bad buying them. However, I was real into Honeycomb. Honeycomb is very good. I was real into Golden Grams. Mm-hmm. Yes, important also. And number one, top five favorite Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Cinnamon Toast Crunch will also be served at my wedding in another form. <laughs> I don't know how, but. Is going to happen because it's also very good. Uh, at one point, I was at this craft beer bar in Newtown, uh, the Union for Australian people. They are like very much focused on having like a million different like weirdo beers that they get like one keg of, and you can try that. And it's stuff like, oh, this one has like squid ink in it, and it's like also all these weird things. And I tried one that was like a St. Peter's Brewery Cinnamon Girl Spiced Ale, and I'm like, all right, this this could be terrible, but let me try it. And I took a sip, and suddenly I got really excited. And everyone's looking at me, and I'm sort of flailing as I'm tasting this thing. Basically, what it was is that it tasted like the milk that was left after Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Cereal milk. Yeah, so cereal milk, yeah. but specifically Cinnamon Toast Crunch cereal milk. It's a, it's a good cereal milk. I was trying to articulate it to a country of people that had never heard of Cinnamon Toast Crunch before. That's so sad. So I sounded like a That's crazy so person? That's so sad. It's like one of those weird associations. I had this almost an argument with a person at a, a cellar door in wine country in Hunter Valley because I was trying to tell him that his wine tasted like dog smelled. And I was trying to articulate it. What it, I realized later, it smelled like lanolin, like the kind of thing you get off like wool. L- lanolin. <laughs> lanolin. Lanolin, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, just thinking about Anchorman and cracking myself up now. I, people say Lanolin, I go straight to Garfield and Friends and that weird farmyard U.S. Acres thing that went with it. That always The, the girl sheep was named Lanolin and I never got oh, that. What? Until like later when, when we were doing like biology and they're like, oh, the oil produced by hair and wool is called Lanolin. And I went, oh, because the sheep. Yeah, I get it. I, for some reason, that's making me very disturbed. I'm furrowing my eyebrows a lot. I'm, I'm making the face that I make sometimes when I, like, think about microscopes for too long. <laughs> it's really upsetting. It's weird how that happens. Deep. All right. I'm, we might go deep now. And let me know if this is not comfortable for you. But why are you afraid of microscopes? Why do microscopes make you nervous? I'm not afraid of microscopes. I just 
feel like I never see in them what I'm supposed to see. When I look into a microscope, I feel like what primarily what I see is my own eye. I think that's what I'm seeing oh. when I look into a microscope. Is that like when you occasionally get sunglasses that are reflective on the inside? <laughs> you find yourself, like if you're on a bus or something, where you're like, you're looking at the reflection of like your eye and the edge of your eyelid and like studying the detail, like when you're so, zoning out. Do you get that? Or is that just me? When you said sunglasses that are reflective on the inside, I recoiled from the microphone. <laughs> that is my worst nightmare. That's horrifying. I'm gonna have nightmares about that. That's terrible. <laughs> so if you were ever in Blade Runner and you had to do the Voight-Kampff test where they like put a big projection of your eyeball no. on the screen behind you. <laughs> no, burn the witch. Yeah, no. I discovered like a... <laughs> do not want. I, yeah, I don't know. They just freak me out. I, I just, I don't understand. And I, I understand and appreciate telescopes. And someone said to me, Camille, just... A microscope is just like look from the other side of a telescope. I wanted to like run away. Like I just <laughs> something about it, man. I just don't. I just don't trust it, and I just feel like I know microbes exist, but like, do I? <laughs> it's like those uh, the vacuum cleaner salesman thing when they like come into your house and they'll be like, "Oh, you know, there's dust mites on everything. So here, here's a picture of dust mites to make you feel unclean and want to buy a vacuum." Mm. No, everything about that is no. I'm shaking my head and just... I'm going to get... We we have to talk about something else. I'm going to become completely incomprehensible and useless. (laughs) The more I think about microscopes. That's cool. Yeah, no. You don't don't want people knowing your soft underbelly. I've made a mistake in letting so many people know my my distrust of microscopes. Like, if you want to hide something from Camille, just put it under a microscope. It's never going to (laughs) happen. Just... Yeah. So, so if listeners want to send you close-up pictures of their eyes, <laughs> I'm not. No, I'm not even going to do that as a joke. No, listeners, don't do that. Don't don't add Camille pictures of. <laughs> well, actually, you know, I have watched many an eye surgery. I like to watch surgery. Oh Jesus, no, no, no. So I can do that, but it's it's not even. It's just the. The process of a microscope, I just don't get it. It's not what I'm seeing through the microscope. It's the microscope itself. I don't trust the technology. It seems like a, a lie. Because, of course, microscopes are new and untested. I'm sure they'll have it safe in the next yeah. couple of years. I mean, it's not like they've been around for literally hundreds of years. Okay, well, <laughs> your tone seems very pointed right now. Um. <laughs> this was great. Yeah. See, we talked about cartoons. We didn't even get into Animaniacs. Yeah, oh, my God. See, this is the thing about talking about cartoons from that era there's there were just so many brilliant ones but you can you can discuss them with someone else on another episode i'm sure that you'll get to animaniacs i might actually have to do like a a group one where it's like everyone comes in and just talks about their like formative cartoons like animaniacs and eek the cat and where in the time is carmen san diego and all those things from that time doug angry beavers oh doug yeah so i have a vitruvian (laughs) doug in my office at work it's pretty awesome excellent someone came to one of our uh, we had a superhero themed like sort of drinks at work and someone came as was it quail man yeah and nobody got it what everyone else is lame i feel you should everyone should know who quail man is that's essential information these crazy kids (laughs) yeah kids these days man 
All right, Camille, well, let's wrap it up. Thank you so much for coming back and completing part Thank two. Thank you for having me, Frondaloo. Camille, if people wanted to find you on the internet, where would they go? So they could find me on twitter.com, the website. I have heard of that. <laughs> I'm at that Blasian girl. If you are interested in seeing what CT and I are talking about on the podcast, um, you can find us there on Twitter at the Black Hotties. And we're also at the blackhotties.com. And you can look at episodes and links to the things that we talk about and just all of our general ridiculousness. And yes, I definitely recommend you go and check out this podcast. Not for nothing, but each host of the podcast is on a separate audio channel and will hit the asthma spot real hard, just in case you're into that. Just thought I'd throw that in there. (laughs) Oh, I remember that being like one of our first Twitter interactions. Really? Go figure. Yeah. (laughs) Because I specifically remember like putting on the podcast as I got into the elevator at work to go down for a break. And it came on so suddenly, and I had my big headphones on that I actually turned my head, thinking that one of you was standing directly behind me. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting way you guys record, and I think it's real cool. It's working. Well, I'm glad you enjoy it, Frondi. Same to you, Frond. once again to Camille Washington for her time. In the creation of this week's signature cocktail, I did some research into Filipino cocktails and found that almost all of them are ridiculously sweet. So I've added a few touches of Tennessee and created the Manila to Memphis. In a shaker full of ice, combine four ounces of coconut water, two ounces of bourbon, half an ounce of coffee liqueur such as Kahlua or Mr. Black cold drip coffee liqueur, half an ounce of lemon or calamansi juice for extra Filipino charm, half an ounce of dark simple syrup, which is made by combining equal parts of boiling water and dark brown sugar. Shake with ice and strain into a pre-chilled cocktail glass. Garnish with a lemongrass stick and top with peach bitters. Try one on a hot winter's day, guaranteed to make you just fearless enough to be dangerous. Enjoy! The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening. If you'd like to be a guest on The Math of You, simply send us an email at themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. Follow us on Twitter at themathofyou. And if you'd like to follow my wacky adventures, you can follow me at Lokified on Twitter and Instagram or at Lokified82 on Snapchat. Next week, I'll be talking to Jetta Ray, co-host of The Greatest Podcast in the History of Our Sport and author of Fry Havoc, an intersectional cooking blog, to talk about the mystery of Dungeons & Dragons. Join me, won't you? You'll have to look it up after. Yeah, because I, I think to do the Macy Gray, like, at least for the impression you got to, like, direct the voice back up through your nose and then, like, let it combine in your mouth. So it's, I find a secret pie and I choke and walk away and I stumble. I'm totally going to cut that because that's going to sound terrible coming through the mic. I don't know. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. 